Hello and welcome to day three of ULAR 2021. My name is Professor Doug Veal. I'm a professor of medicine and a consultant rheumatologist from University College Dublin. Day three of ULAR 2021 virtual congress, including many interesting sessions on targeted synthetic DMARD therapy for rheumatoid arthritis and an oral abstract session focused on the treatment of psoriatic arthritis, while a ULAR session focused on managing chronic pain. There are also plenty of highlights from new developments in COVID-related research, and we will cover this session also. I'd like to start, though, by talking about targeted synthetic DMARDs uh, in relation to rheumatoid arthritis. It's hard to imagine that we've been using JAK inhibitors now for 10 years and have clinical experience of these drugs in more and more patients. So it's very timely for the ULAR session to review where we are in this important topic. This was a great session with Roy Fleischmann and Hendrik Schultz-Koops uh, discussing the side effects of JAK inhibitors and selective JAK inhibitor on the verve implications for therapy. While Professor Kyberts provided 10-year real-world data from his registry, and we featured uh, this in our highlights on day one. I thoroughly recommend you try and watch this session if you've missed it. It's a really good summary of the key topics of interest in JAK inhibitor use. I have one real-world data poster to share with you today from Iwamoto and colleagues. Their study uh, looked at the effectiveness and safety of tofacitinib and baricitinib in rheumatoid patients using propensity score matching. There's no comparison of tofa and bari in real world setting. So they set out to look at 242 patients that were treated with these two JAK inhibitors and looking at the clinical response in each. There was no significant difference found, uh, but the concomitant use of methotrexate did show better clinical efficacy with Barry compared to TOFA. The most common adverse effect, as you would expect, was herpes zoster infection, and this occurred at similar rates in both treatment groups. There was a fantastic session on treating psoriatic arthritis today, and there are five abstracts that I'd like to highlight. And it's worth noting that these abstracts were also selected uh, as chairman's pick in our ULAR highlights brochure, which you can find at cytokinesignaling.com. The first abstract I'd like to share with you is the 2021 update to the GRAPA treatment recommendations presented by Laura Coates. So Laura presented on behalf of her international colleagues which include rheumatologists, dermatologists, and patient advocates to provide an update on the overarching principles for the management of patients with PSA, following a systematic literature search and additional searches from conference presentations. They provide updated evidence-based treatment recommendations and recommend that the choice of therapy should address all domains that impact on these patients and support shared decision-making. Additional consideration was given to key associated conditions and comorbidities 
which are often common in these patients, and impact on therapy choice. My next selection is from Atoll and colleagues who aim to investigate the efficacy and safety of UPTA in patients with axial spa. Patients with psoriatic arthritis with axial involvement are known to exhibit greater disease activity and also quality of life impairment compared to those without. They randomize patients to once daily up to 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams compared to adalimumab 40 milligrams every other week or indeed placebo. Higher percentages of patients on up to 15 milligrams and 30 milligrams achieved BASDI 50, ASDAS inactive disease, low disease activity and major improvement and clinically important improvement at weeks 12 and 24 compared to those uh, receiving placebo. So the conclusion is that UPTA is efficacious in treating axial symptoms in PSA patients. Laura led another paper, this time looking at a new agent in the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. Having dem demonstrated efficacy in two pivotal phase two studies, they presented their efficacy and safety uh, findings for gazelkimab at 24 weeks in PSA patients with an inadequate response to TNF inhibition. This study uh, looked at over 280 patients with active psoriatic arthritis, uh, defined as greater than or equal to three swollen and three tender joints, who had demonstrated a lack of benefit or indeed an intolerance to one or two TNF inhibitors. They were randomized two to one to subcutaneous gazelkimab at 100 milligrams or indeed to placebo at week zero, week four, and then every eight weeks. The key results from this study showed that at week 24, 44% of gazelkimab treated patients versus 19% of placebo patients achieved an ACR20. Gazelkimab was superior to placebo for all major secondary endpoints. So efficacy was consistent across subgroups defined by baseline characteristics, including patients who discontinued prior TNF inhibitors due to inadequate efficacy and also safety. There are also 24-week results from the Keepsake 2 trial on the efficacy and safety of, of Rizankizumab for active PSA presented by uh, Andrew Oster and colleagues. In this study, Rizankizumab uh, was looked at in patients with inadequate response or intolerance to one or two biologic therapies or one conventional synthetic demand. They enrolled adults with active psoriatic arthritis, and this time with higher swollen and tender joint counts, who were biologic inadequate responders or uh, conventional synthetic DMARD inadequate responders. And patients were randomized to receive blinded subcutaneous rizankizumab 
or placebo at weeks 0, 4, and 16, with ACR 20 as a primary endpoint at week 24. So significantly greater proportions of the rosenkizumab-treated patients compared to placebo-treated patients achieved primary endpoint, 51% versus 26%, and all ranked secondary endpoints. Other secondary endpoints also showed improvement for rosenkizumab compared to placebo-treated patients. Serious adverse events were reported in 4% and 5.5% of rosenkizumab and placebo-treated patients, respectively. Serious infections only occurred in 0.9% and 2.3% of patients, uh, respectively. So rosenkizumab resulted in significantly greater improvements in signs and symptoms of PSA compared with placebo, and it was well tolerated. Phil Mees and colleagues also presented data on the efficacy of uh, ducrovacitinib in patients with active psoriatic arthritis assessed by ACR20 at 16 weeks. Ducrovacitinib is an oral TIC2 inhibitor and is known to be efficacious and well tolerated in PSA patients. Patients were selected on the basis, the basis of disease activity and also duration of greater than or equal to six months. And it was stratified by TNF inhibitor status. Patients treated with ducrofacitinib were numerically more likely to achieve an ACR20 response at week 16 compared to placebo-treated patients, regardless of their TNF inhibitor experience or indeed their body weight. Improvements at two doses, six milligrams and 12 milligrams versus placebo were observed in all ACR components. We've seen several abstracts and presentations over the week so far focusing on pain. As we know, it's an area of major concern, both to us and our patients, in the management of chronic inflammatory diseases. So it's great to see a whole scientific session dedicated to managing chronic pain today. John Lampa chaired this session and it was moderated by John Macbeth. It's centered around case studies with one presented by Rudresh Shulkla, specifically about chronic pain in rheumatoid arthritis patients. This was followed by an insightful discussion led by Neil Basu stratified, uh, on stratified targeted treatments for chronic pain in rheumatoid arthritis. If you weren't able to attend the live session, do try and watch it as it is something that is of the utmost relevance to our clinical practice. We haven't focused on content looking at COVID in the context of rheumatic and inflammatory diseases so far this week. On day three, however, there was a wealth of oral presentations and posters on COVID. This covered a variety of topics 
from the safety of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in patients with rheumatic diseases, to the use of baricitinib and tofacitinib in hospitalized patients with COVID-19, to machine learning algorithms to predict uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome and the impact of the pandemic on physical functioning and mental well-being. I'm delighted to share some of the abstracts with you and to reflect on what has been a fascinating year in relation to advances that have been made in this area. First, I'd like to share with you data from a preliminary assessment undertaken by Cuomo and colleagues to investigate the safety profile of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine in patients with uh, rheumatic diseases. This multi-center observational study interviewed 27 patients with RMD and 30 healthy sub subjects who were receiving the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in the recommended dosage of 0.3 mil IM, two doses 21 days apart at time zero and three weeks. 35 subjects complained of adverse events after the first vaccine dose with symptom onset occurring one day after the vaccination. There were 16 patients, uh, 16 RMD patients and 19 healthy uh, subjects who reported uh, complaining adverse events. All, all adverse events were classified as non-serious. 15 patients, that's five patients, five RMD patients and 10 healthy subjects reported adverse events after the second vaccine, again characterized as non-serious. And they conclude from this small study that BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccines are safe in rheumatic disease patients, as well as in healthy subjects. An observational multicenter national cohort study querying the French RMD COVID-19 cohort was presented by Avuak and colleagues. They explored whether patients with RMD and inflammatory diseases treated with rituximab experienced more severe COVID-19 infection. Presentations such as this show how important real-time, real-world data is in understanding this pandemic and how it affects our patients and the treatments uh, that they are receiving. So the primary endpoint was to assess the severity rate of COVID-19 and severe disease was defined by hospitalization in intensive care unit or death. A total of 63 patients were treated with rituximab, mainly for rheumatoid arthritis. That is 49% of patients receiving rituximab uh, for rheumatoid arthritis in this cohort. After adjusting on potential confounding factors, severe disease was observed more frequently in patients receiving rituximab compared to all rituximab untreated patients with inflammatory rheumatic disease patients 
and the subgroup of untreated rituximab patients with diseases eligible for rituximab therapy. Patients who developed severe disease had a more recent rituximab infusion compared to patients with mild or moderate disease. So they concluded that rituximab therapy is associated with more severe COVID-19 infection and should be used with, ca with caution in those patients with inflammatory rheumatic disease, especially if they've received their rituximab in the recent past. Felton and colleagues looked at whether rituximab was associated with severe COVID-19, but they focused on patients with inflammatory arthritis alone. The results of their one-year multi-center study in successive patients receiving biologic agents uh, was presented. So they looked at over a thousand successive patients receiving biologic agents and 392 of those patients were given rituximab. They identified 10 cases of severe COVID, nine of whom were treated with rituximab and only one who received infliximab. The proportion of severe COVID-19 was significantly higher in patients receiving rituximab compared to other biologic agents. And they concluded that there's an increased risk of severe COVID-19 in patients treated with rituximab, indicating they should be prioritized for COVID vaccination. So this very much supports the data from this, the French study also. So patients with RMD are often treated with immunomodulatory drugs. So there is a concern that they may be at an increased risk of COVID-19 infection. Aselli and colleagues interrogated the German physician reported COVID-19 RMD registry to try to understand whether TNF inhibition decreased the risk of severe COVID-19 in this population. There is a suggestion from other studies that patients treated with TNF inhibitors actually experienced less severe COVID-19 infections. So they looked at RMD patients who had confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and examined the data compared to RMD patients treated with other immunomodulatory drugs other than TNF inhibitors. Hospitalization rates due to SARS-CoV infection was required in only 12% of TNFI-treated patients. This was compared to 29% of patients who received other immunomodulatory drugs. Most notably, no fatal courses of COVID-19 were reported among the 269 RMD patients treated with TNF inhibitors versus 49 deaths in the 874 cases. That is 5.6% of uh, patients treated with other immunomodulatory drugs. RMD patients treated with TNF inhibitors show a low hospitalization rate and no fatalities, which is reassuring for patients treated with TNF inhibitors and also 
reassuring for the rheumatologists treating these patients. Although the rheumatology community have been considering the risk to our patients from COVID-19, we have also found that treatments effective in treating RMD patients may be effective in treating COVID-19 infections. Friedman and Vasquez presented a poster on the use of baricitinib and tocilizumab in the treatment of moderate to severe COVID-19 infections in hospitalized patients. Patients hospitalized due to COVID-19 associated pneumonia and or respiratory failure requiring supplemental oxygen or invasive or non-invasive assisted mechanical ventilation were analyzed. 11 patients were treated with tocilizumab and 30 patients received treatment with baricitinib. The key results showed that five patients treat with, treated with tocilizumab required assisted uh, mechanical ventilation, but only six out of 20 or 20% 20 of patients treated with baricitinib required AMV. The use of Barry was correlated with a reduction in the use of assisted mechanical ventilation, significant to at P0.01, and a lower mortality at P0.05. The use of tocilizumab was not associated with a reduced hospitalization, and patients receiving baricitinib had significantly shorter hospital stays than those patients receiving tocilizumab. And they concluded that baricitinib is significantly associated with a better outcome as measured by discharge due to improvement and a significantly shorter hospital stay. Now, one presentation that I found particularly interesting today was on machine learning algorithms to predict COVID-19 acute respiratory distress syndrome in patients with rheumatic diseases. Izadi and a group of international colleagues aimed to develop a prediction model for ARDS using data from COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry. And these results I found fascinating. So they aimed to develop a prediction model for ARDS in people with COVID-19 and pre-existing rheumatic disease. Data taken from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry between March 24th and November 1st, 2020 were analyzed. Five machining learning algorithms optimized for rare events predicted ARDS using 42 variables. Gradient boosting machine or GBM had the highest sensitivity at 0.81 and was considered the best performing model. Hypertension, ILD, kidney disease, diabetes, older age, glucocorticoids, and anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies were associated 
with ARDS. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitors or TNF inhibitors were associated with a protective effect in this study. And that would confirm other studies that we just reviewed. So a machine learning model, GBN, predicted the onset of ARDS with 81% sensitivity using baseline information obtained at the time of COVID-19 diagnosis. This is really a fascinating result. We're all aware that the pandemic has had an impact on mental well-being and on the levels of physical activity that we're doing. Cleeton and colleagues from the UK presented an interim report of an ongoing research study exploring the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on physical functioning and mental well-being in patients with rheumatic disease. In this interim report, they looked at a number of web-based surveys sent to 7,911 patients on active follow-up, eight months apart. Patients were assessed using the SF12 version, two mental and physical component scores. There was 824 responses which were linked across both surveys. 76.3% had an ARD, that's 388 out of 824 patients were clinically extremely vulnerable. For the clinically extremely vulnerable group, scores remain significantly lower than the comparator for PCS survey one and survey two and for mental component scores. In the comparator group, mental component scores did not differ in patients with ARD. However, the physical component scores or PCS significantly decreased. So in conclusion, these data suggest that neither mental or physical health of clinically extremely vulnerable patients was worsened by the impact of the pandemic. The physical functioning of patients with ARD significantly decreased. My final pick from the COVID abstracts comes from Ozcan and colleagues from Turkey. They presented preliminary results of long-term follow-up of the health status of patients using conventional synthetic DMARDs or biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs for rheumatic diseases during the pandemic. 160 patients over 18 years of age were recruited through an outpatient clinic between July 2020 and January 2021, according to uh, the use of DMARDs for RMDs. The rate of COVID-19 infection was 15% in all patients, 18% in all obese patients, and 19% in those with at least one comorbid disease. 
17% of patients using conventional synthetic DMARDs compared to 14.5% of patients using biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs as monotherapy and 9% of patients using combination treatment had COVID-19. Of the patients using hydroxychloroquine, which was number 14, three, that is 21% of patients were diagnosed with COVID-19 disease. Therefore, biologic drugs seem not to increase COVID-19 rate. And the final results from this study will be presented after the completion of the full statistical analysis of the complete data. So there were three industry sessions today, including the CSF symposium, cytokine signaling blockade, interactions and outcomes, which was supported by Lilly. Chaired by Professor Paul Emery, with Professors John O'Shea, John Isaacs, and Ricky Alton, explained that Jack stat pathways described mechanisms of action for approved cytokine signaling inhibitors and those under investigation. And they discussed the clinical outcomes of blockade of different pathways. There was some great discussion, so do try and watch it if you missed today's first broadcast. Abvi had two sessions of note today. The first symposium chaired by Gerd Burmeister, striving for remission with Jack inhibition in the management of rheumatoid arthritis, in which Gerd was accompanied by Hendrik Schutz-Koop, Grace Wright, and Philip Conahan to discuss the definition of remission, the value of achieving it, as well as whether Jack inhibitors can help more patients to achieve remission and the evolving safety concerns. Professor Maya Book answered 20 questions in 20 minutes in AbbVie's rapid-fire rheumatology Meet the Expert session which was a very insightful 20 minutes indeed. So another fantastic day at ULAR 2021 Virtual Congress. I hope you've enjoyed this roundup of day three. If you haven't already, you can download our ULAR 2021 highlights brochure from the cytokinesignaling.com website to see the abstracts that we've selected for you for the whole of the Congress along with the uh, pick from our chairman, Ian McInnes. Elena Nikaforu will be with you again tomorrow to discuss the highlights from the final day of the Congress. I am delighted to have been able to represent the CSF in bringing you so many interesting and progressive abstracts today. And thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the Congress. Bye for now.